This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Underground music and talk since 1969. The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this, what I would call a slow start to summer. I don't know if you agree with that, but um, I'm really enjoying it, frankly, because I don't like the heat. (laughs) Wear my winter clothes a little longer, I don't mind. But, um, you know, a long time ago I decided that June gloom just wasn't gloomy. It was just kind of a nice little... I don't know, ease into what otherwise can typically be some really hot summers around here. So I'm enjoying it. I hope you are too. And um, thank you for joining us each and every week. I certainly love being here. I was reflecting on the time that I've been at the station. It's over eight years. Gosh, saying numbers like that makes you feel a little old, but I guess that part's true too. So um, anyway, I, I enjoy the fact that you continue to join us here weekly for Real People OC. I enjoy being out in the community and finding interesting people to bring to you. Every day I find somebody and I don't know, I hope you enjoy it too. But um, today we're going to go on a little bit of a journey together. It's going to be kind of a musical, spiritual journey, one that involves song and storytelling and how two family members have come together to share their stories in a very unique and creative way. So um, I'm pleased to be joined today with Holly McNeil and Jocelyn Sarshad. And um, I'm You know, ladies, you have a story to tell. I just thank you for taking the time to come in and share this unique unfolding of your stories. So I hope our listeners are as intrigued as I am, and I'm looking forward to getting started. excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. And um, so if if you would just briefly, um, I can I can do your bio, but you can too. And I think you do a good job Mm -hmm. of just telling a little bit quickly who you are, because your story is really unique, Holly. And and then I'm sure you'll weave in Jocelyn, too, as it as it comes around. Cool. So two years ago, two and a half years ago, I'd be a completely different person, not on the inside, but I was uh, an associate principal in a large architectural firm and worked all over the country. I was a project manager on large hospitals, um, worked for Stanford, worked in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. But I had an intention, two intentions I put out to the world. One was to retire before I turned 50, and the other was to find the time and space to write my memoir. Now, to retire before 50 is a pretty lofty goal in today's society, especially when things are expensive. Something must have inspired you to do that. I really, 16 years ago at a super low point in my life, I put out to the world that I can change and give me a chance. And, you know, the world responded and I've just been on this amazing journey. I just wanted to write about it. I've been wanting to write about it since 2009, so I had to make that happen. Were you a writer before all of this started, or did you just feel like you were a writer inside? Only contracts, right? Oh, but I'm, I'm, I'm an architect, so I was creative, 
Okay. But I quickly became a project manager, as you saw by my outline I gave you earlier. <laughs> and I, would, at. I was teasing her a little bit. I'm like, oh, this, this is a, a journey of self-discovery, but we have the most beautifully written outline I've ever seen. <laughs> So this writing really gives me gave me the opportunity to write, and I love it. Okay, all right, good. Um, Jocelyn, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Hi, yeah. <clears throat> so I am a singer-songwriter. Um, for the past 10 years or so, I've been working as a classically trained choral singer and vocalist. Um, and I recently decided to really cut back on all those other projects and focus on something that meant more to me deep in my heart, um, which is, you know, sharing a message of, of self-growth and self-healing and something that I'm trying to make more of a focus in my life. So singing about it really helps. Now, what I love about the union between the two of you, and I think that this is what's going to unfold in our discussion, is here you have Holly, a mature, grown woman who's had quite a lot of life experience, um, folding her experience in and overlapping that with a young woman, Jocelyn, who's just unfolding, if you will. Mm-hmm, exactly. um, uh, and I love that that you've paired this. You're you're both related. Mm-hmm. You've paired this in a unique way to sort of kind of pass back and forth. You know, the young wonder back to you, Holly, and and then the the sage wisdom back down um, to Jocelyn. You know, through the ages. So you're sort of trying to bridge that gap, but really, in a in a in a, in a greater way, you're sort of maybe bringing those two spectrums together around um, at the other end to form a circle, maybe. Would that be a better way to describe it a little bit? I think we're amazed at how powerful it came together. It started at my kitchen table when Jocelyn moved in for two weeks, which turned out to be four months. (laughs) (laughs) But we sat down and we had these conversations and we were just, I was blown away that she and I were talking the same things from generation to generation, how that pain can keep going unless we do something about it. So Uh, that's what we're here to talk about. You know, funny that you mentioned that because I've just sort of had happened on some information that indicates that we do pass on some of this stuff, even though you wouldn't think my traumas or my emotions could be passed on to the children. It, it, it is in some sort of weird way. Now, what is the age difference between the two of you? I'm 27. She's 25 You don't have years. to tell. Yeah, you don't have to tell <laughs> us your ages. But now Sorry. you can do the math. <laughs> don't do the math. Please, no Wait math on this no, program. No, no. I'm 28 now. Oh, that's right. Uh-oh. That's, that's even better. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but. Okay, well, so let's, let's go back to that kitchen table moment. Because you, Holly, were already on your journey. Because right. we touched base over a year ago. Right. And we're trying to talk about what we could potentially do with some of the work that you were noshing about with. Right. And that's what's so amazing. When the timing isn't right, it just, for some reason, it doesn't work out. But, uh, yeah, I'd been working for a little over a year on my memoir when I got her call. And, hey, can I move in for two weeks? And I'm like, hey, uncle, what do you think? And he's like, sure, two weeks. And so, yeah, I was, she's actually even read my book back to me, which is amazing. And she's just, she just, the point she was at her life when she moved in was exactly what I was writing about. And it was really mind-blowing, really. Fascinating. What about you, Justin? So, yeah, that point um, in my life, I I was unhappy in my work. I was uh, just overworked, and I was unhappy in my relationship. It wasn't right, and in the place I was living. And 
it was causing me to be like mildly depressed and it was also winter which doesn't help me but um <clears throat> it was a I, I really needed to make a big change so I quit my job the relationship ended and I decided I wanted to be in the heart of LA I really wanted to move there it had been a dream of mine yeah you'd been in Orange County for nine years yeah for a long time and Since I was 18 okay. I'm from Colorado and I never meant to move from there to Orange County that's a big change yeah so I was like what why am I not in LA where all the music you know where like this such a beautiful city um so when I called her up it was a huge transition in my life and and it was just such a gift to <clears throat> to be staying there and wake up in the morning and we would make tea and golden milk golden chai milk. mushroom cacao tea Yes. It was, it <laughs> All was, the good makings yeah. of a good spiritual morning. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And we would sit um, in the mornings at the table and drink our tea and talk about her book and talk about the things that I was going through personally and trying to figure out how I wanted to shape my life and, and the kind of control I, I was learning how to, the responsibility I was learning how to um, wield in my own life. And, it was just, uh, just the universe, you know, bringing us together in that way. It's mind blowing. So I'm fascinated by um, the fact that you mentioned you were both going through something at the same time. You know, this is. I'm not intending in any way to minimize your experiences by saying this next statement, but this bubbling up is happening everywhere. Nobody's immune. That's mm -hmm. right. So something dramatic is shifting for not just some people that want this or are open to a spiritual experience. Whether you are or you aren't, you are being grabbed, you know, with the cane yeah. off the stage of what you think is your life and thrown into not so much an abyss, but just a little enough turmoil to get you out of the space you thought you were in. What, what is that about? Oh, Kimberly, that's exactly what you just hit on, what, exactly what my book's about. It's about, it's, the, the working title right now is Mystical Classroom. Okay. And unless we're going to be victims to what happened to us, which we certainly can be, and people are, and they spend their whole lives that way, we, you know, we're students. This is an amazing, you know, you open your heart and you take responsibility for your life. I mean, everybody is dealt stuff, right? There's right. a... The film <clears throat> in 1998, uh, Hope Floats, there's a quote that says, childhood is what you spend the rest of your life recovering from. And even Rocket Man, right, as recently as that movie, and I'm not going to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen Rocket Man, <laughs> but there's a scene where Elton John in his 40s kneels down and his, his little five-year-old self says, when are you going to give me a hug? Oh. So nobody's immune. And it's just, we, we, our goal is to just help people be aware that we're actually amazing beings, and we have a huge power if we just reconnect with that. Whatever pain we have, we've covered it up, but we've got this amazing core within us that allows us to intend our lives and train our minds for happiness, and we're just trying to get that word out there because it happened to me. It happened to me. I mean, I was in a low spot, and... It happened. And clearly you were at the pinnacle of your career. You had yes. on the outer world, you know, you could tell the story that was great and successful and mm -hmm. traveling all over the world doing what it is that you obviously did very well. Yeah, thank you. And so to step away from that and retire early, you know, it had to have been a pretty um, rattling experience. 
It was, again, something I intended. Like, in my early 40s, I changed all my passwords to Freedom 50, right? I mean, maybe that didn't do it, but that sent a message out there. I was ready for it. It's not... I, I, I think I wrote in my bio that I was uh, in line to be the managing principal of our San Francisco office. Right. But you know what? Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I've learned so much about growth. And, uh, you know, if you're asleep to your arrested development, what that can mean to you, that that's what I wanted to spend the rest of the time I have doing. Here on this planet. Yeah. I mean, I have this time and I have this knowledge and I want to share it. Fascinating. Okay, so... Um, we're going to do like a little mock experience, one which you intend to give anybody that wants to come to uh, your events. Um, tell us really quickly when your first event is. So we have one scheduled for August 7th. It's okay. at a place called the Unbound Collective. Okay. And my friend Anara, who has, she's a life coach, she has the Soul Cafe there. It's in Newport Beach. Right, very cool. And yeah, 6.30 to 8.30, and it's going to have original songs by Jocelyn and a storytelling by me, meditation and conversation. Okay. And um, the name that you have given this is Second Degree. Uh, your tagline, Brought Together by Blood, Performing Together for Love. And so we're going to kind of follow through a little bit of that. How do you want to lay this out? Do you want to start um, by giving a little more background? Or are you ready to go into this this I, experience? I have a couple of things to read, and I think you have a couple of songs. So mm-hmm. let's do it. Why don't I just read? Why don't I start? Okay, and before we get started, I just want to redirect the listener. If you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. And we air each and every week here from thir- on Thursdays from 4 to 5. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and I am pleased to be joined by Holly McNeil and Jocelyn Sarshad. And we are basically just doing a little unfolding together of two women's experience, both from different phases of life, uh, sharing some similar, I don't know, breakthroughs, we'll call them. Okay, let's go. So I'm going to read, this is a little, just a two-pager that's in my book, and uh, we'll go from there. So why is it when we dream at night, we're 100% 100 convinced that whatever situation we're whisked away to is our reality? even though, as little as minutes earlier, our existence was snuggling in our beds. When we awake, the dream we believe to be real disappears in an instant, gone completely. Yet we are not surprised. It was just a dream. We accept that. This life, though it is longer in duration, is no more permanent than last night's dream. When we die, everything and everyone in it will disappear. We know it to be impermanent, yet we grasp onto it as if it will never end. Why do we grasp? Why do we fear the common end to any human life? In a word, satisfaction. How content we are to age and eventually die depends entirely on how satisfied we are with what we've lived so far. And if we've discovered meaning and fulfillment in our lives, we are jacked to keep going. Aging becomes the portal from which we can accumulate um, contentment and joy. To find this meeting, I have found it utterly essential to realize the effects our choices have on the part of us that is, et- that is eternal, how our responses to adversity and challenge change us, what our actions in this life does to our soul. So whether you are Christian, aiming for heaven, Buddhist, where enlightenment is your goal, or follow some other spiritual or non-spiritual path, 
It is the gifts behind the adversity that can lead us to the satisfaction, fulfillment, and meaning. In other words, our life's purpose becomes apparent when we take responsibility for our choices and create fundamental and positive change in our being. Here's the deal. The events of our lives, the, thought we, the thoughts we have, the conditions we live under, and the people we come across are all gifts. For as cliche as it sounds, everything does happen for a reason. It is the gifts behind every challenge we encounter that pave the often unrecognized inroads, inroads into our souls and bring into view the part of us that is immortal. There are roughly seven and a half billion people on this earth, and since we are all inflicted with this same human condition, for the most part, we all deal with the same issues. Birth, growth, emotions, conflict, sickness, adversity, aspiration, joy, and mortality. Many types of events we face in our life we share in common. There is only a grand handful of them to start with in, this, in our human realm. The lessons we are confronted with here are the lessons of humanity. And if we don't learn from our coursework, if we pass up on the chance or botch up our assignment, whether we believe in karma or not, the beautiful part of it all is that the lessons will repeat until we do. We will keep going down that same track until we learn what we're meant to learn. Repeating lessons, that is what we experience here. Learning and growing from them is where we can find fulfillment. For me, the repeating lesson that started with my childhood and replayed with my children is the one for which I was unknowingly preparing. No other assignment would bring me as far as this one. None would teach me as much. And while my story reads like so many others, where divorce is thrust upon the children who suffer the most, remember, it is what you do with the challenges in these times of hardship that define who you are and create who you will become. Wow. So you were reading this book, Jocelyn, and a lot of that sounds like sage wisdom from somebody who's gone through a lot, but some of that really spoke to you. And I want to hear a little bit about what did and then what you did with that information that brought this potent relationship together in this way. I think the most meaningful thing about her writing... Holly writing her memoir was her bravery in sharing um, because because a lot of the stuff that she talks about in the book is really difficult like it's difficult for to share that with people you know and family members to read and it's really brave so I think there's specific content that of course was meaningful to me but really the bravery in her telling her own story and sharing that, that encouraged me to share my struggles and, you know, and I think that if everybody talked more about what they're going through, then we would all have an easier time, so. And you feel like maybe song is a way to bring that out a little more easily in people, in a little less threatening way, maybe? Yeah, And yeah. just asking the bigger questions straight up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a little easier because... You know, you can chill out, listen to the music, and think about the lyrics. So I like to do it in song. Okay, let's do it. All right. Well, this one, it's just a little snippet, but... Um, yeah, it's just a little snippet. Okay. But <clears throat> it's just about how, really, there are ups and downs to life, and... Just got to be patient with yourself as you go through it all. Okay, I love it. Oh, life is a wild. 
to my eyes. That <laughs> is intense. That's pretty loud. <laughs> it's not loud. It's intense. It's definitely, wow. Yeah, that one's a screamer. That's the one you sing when you're just like, life, what is happening? I don't care. I'm grateful. Take me. You know, <laughs> you know probably the hardest thing is to find trust in those moments. And, you know, I'm raising a family. I have three children of my own. Nice. And it is so hard to, because I'm just learning to be courageous in that moment, and I'm 50, you know. Right. When when you can say that at 50, you're finally learning to be courageous in that unknown space, I've done it enough times that I know I come through, but to, to, but to turn that around and tell it to a young person, it's, it's, it's a leap of faith in every possible way, isn't it? That's what amazes me so much about Jocelyn, is she is, I, I'm thankful i mean i'm thankful to have like this kind of awareness Mm -hmm. of 50 plus yeah but for her to have it in her late 20s is just such a gift gift. and the only reason i have it is because of the experiences that i've gone through in childhood and the adults in my life Mm -hmm. and so they're all lessons all lessons and i'm just grateful that i have the awareness of them so I can see it now and try to spend as much time as I can sharing the message. Is there any, you know, I, I I hesitate to go to this area, but, you know, let me know if we want to go there or not. It's fine because everybody's story is different. So, Mm -hmm. and, and then yet they're all the same. So, um, not to minimize anybody's experience, but is there any part of this journey that you care to share or you need to share? Or is it just that we're all on this really difficult continuum taking our hits when we get them? You know, there's, there is that, you know? So I hit a pretty low point when I was 21 years old and I, um, my mother had told me the story about what it was like when my father got or left right and he was pretty much alienated from us which is what the first chapter of my book is about and I'll read a little bit of that to you in just a bit but she painted such a horrible picture of him and it wasn't until something which is really you know happening in the hashtag me too world that took me to counseling where I really started to unfold what had happened in my childhood So at 21, I called my mother up and I said, hey, look, you did this. This was you. And you, you know, this caused me and my sisters just a lot of pain and scarring and hurt and loss of confidence and self-worth. And I was bawling on the phone and there was nothing on the other end. She could give nothing back. She could give me zero. And I, the gift that I got that day was that I even though she was fundamental in creating the delusions I was living under, they were mine alone to own. Wow, that's that's a heavy one. Now, let's unpack that just a little bit because I think that's a really tough one for people to um, embrace. Why would you put the pressure on yourself to own that? And And why was that 
so valuable to do so? You know, at the time, and in my, in my writing, I call it the beacon, because it was the first time I had an awareness that there was something beyond, I wasn't the enemy. I wasn't the one that caused all this horrible, you know, my father to leave. And I found my voice in talking to my mother. And these things I, I tucked away because I soon lost that voice and I went right back down the rabbit hole. But when I needed it, years later, when I really needed it, it was there for me because I had made that inroad. I'd made that connection. And that's why I was so thankful to have it. Okay. Because when you say that it was yours to own, that's very different than blaming yourself, isn't it? Yes. It's a very important yes. distinction. We all blame ourselves. Right. right. So how do you get people out of blame and into this really critical part of ownership of something that's important to well, take possession of? Joss and I were talking about that. And actually one of my sisters mentioned, it's is it the Maxwell or somebody, the 10,000 hour thing, right? Oh, that's um, uh, Mac- <laughs> it's, Malcolm, it's Malcolm Glad- Gladwell. Yes. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. It's it's that turning point, really. Right, that yes. And tipping point, I think right, is what he calls so what, it. So what we want to talk about is how many hours have we trained in depression? How many hours have we trained in negative self-talk, right? Okay. So the, the toolkit that we need to change that around is to spend 10,000 hours training in kindness, uh-huh. training in compassion for yourself first and for others. There's nothing more healing than compassion for others. Yeah. So it's, it's exercising something that we as a society aren't really tuned into exercising, isn't it? That's right. We, it's just, we're so used to the negative. It's just how we operate. Right. It's in when tragedy happens to you when you're young, this is your modus operandi that you return to over and over again. So you have to reprogram that computer and it doesn't happen overnight. It's like teaching a dog to sit on, you know, for 10 years. And then when you say sit, you've decided he doesn't want it, you don't want him to sit anymore. Right. He doesn't he's like, what? What are you talking about? Well, that's what your brain's doing. And yeah, it takes commitment, and that's what's owning it. You're owning your delusions. You're owning the patterns you've created. You're owning y- your pain, and you're providing yourself with compassion and, and love to support that. Okay. You want to well, share some thoughts? Yeah. I think since I am closer to – I am um, I have more recently started to take more responsibility for my – for my issues and things gotcha. that I'm trying to figure out. Um, and it is really hard. It's hard because, <clears throat> like, my, and the only reason that I have done it is because it, it's not, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work to not take responsibility. It doesn't work to blame other people. Um, for the way that my life is because it's just it's not true and I found that like I wasn't able to find fulfillment or like or be creative or in the flow or whenever I tried to meditate it would be way too uncomfortable um, mentally and so it was kind of like well the only thing that you can do is really is to take responsibility for your trauma because nobody else can fix it for you you know nobody else it it's just impossible for anybody else to take responsibility so you manage to find your way to as you would say take responsibility without laying blame on yourself right and there's and and that's probably the biggest thing we would hope to drive home at this point 
is is this is a courageous step but it isn't it it might lay you open emotionally but it isn't one that's going to stomp you or or crush you it's actually going to strengthen you right yeah it's it's like holding up a new weight exactly I find when you open your when you do that it opens your heart just a little bit and Mm -hmm. like you have this incredible wisdom inside of you that's just covered but when you open your heart and you take responsibility you're not alone right you get for me and that's what I write about is that I've had everything I needed to figure it out just showed up it was amazing because I was willing to look at it I hear that a lot you know um, some people call that the power of prayer other people call that you know universal intention mm-hmm. um, there's lots of different ways we can talk about the same phenomenon different language that can be used mm-hmm. but when you put yourself in that trust space it's almost it's almost instantaneous mm-hmm. it is the response yeah. i'm not crazy. talking days right or hours i'm yeah. talking seconds right or minutes you have a story yeah. about well, that I'm just, <laughs> for me with my writing um it can be really when i was struggling through like trying to figure out what to do with my career and feeling depressed my relationship all that stuff it was really hard for me to write because I would put something online and it would get this amazing response and people would be really interested. I would get lots of DMs from different companies about, well, we want you to represent our brand, blah, blah, blah. And it was just, I didn't feel feel like I deserved it. I felt scared of it, you know, and that was, it's feeling like I'm worthy of everything the universe has to give me. That is one of my my biggest met is yeah. yeah my biggest not struggles but journeys that right. I think you have to retrain do that I am deserving of that yeah and I think you are yes <laughs> thank you <laughs> so many people don't even realize you know that they can have it all like the more okay. you believe in yourself there's a magic within each one of us and I believe that we are we are creators of our lives and we a lot of people create them unintentionally and negatively but we can change that and in a moment it takes uh, 10,000 hours whatever but the opportunity is there for anyone at any moment to make that change I was really struck earlier Jocelyn when you talked about how difficult it was to meditate that it almost hurt because you in some way weren't ready I think a lot of people experience that phenomenon what you just described because meditation is kind of the new buzzword and Mm -hmm. you get to do it at work now and they have safe spaces for you on college campuses (laughs) and you know we're all kind of pushing for that but I, I I, I do this image where I tie my hands up in little wads and we're trying to do things with our hands all tied up. Mm. But what is that? What is that struggle? Why did it hurt in the beginning? And what was the that material change that unlocked it for you? Because I know it's not a hard thing to unlock, but but it is in a way. It's hard because when you're unaware of what you're missing, then how are you supposed to get to it? So what I was doing... I was putting a ton of pressure on myself in general, but also with meditation, you know, trying to sit with this intention to change myself into a wise, you know, being ready, do it. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. And I also... Were you trying to sidestep the adversity or had you already experienced the adversity? I was trying to push, push myself into what I thought was the right 
way, but I needed to just sit back and allow the sadness that was there to be felt. And that's really scary. And I'm really lucky that Aunt Holly, um, we would meditate some mornings. She would do uh, personalized meditations for for me me. (laughs) and um, that had to do with, with loving my inner child and and she really gave me a mental like framework and and visualization that helped me um, f- put a shape to the sadness and the pain because I feel like if I was I was just going into it and without any idea of how to process such a huge painful thing okay um, so the few Buddhist uh, or meditation talks that I went to helped me I don't know it just took some time. And it took uh, uh, gratitude. Okay, was that's the, a big one. That was the key for me. Like, hey, at least I'm sitting here giving myself this time on the cushion. That is a big plus. You know, I wasn't doing this. Even if that was all you could give at that moment. Exactly. And when I did find gratitude in those moments, then all of a sudden all the other things I was putting pressure on myself to find, like joy they were there right because yeah gratitude has been a big key for me in meditation so um do we want to set up the next reading or song yeah, as we mm-hmm. kind of share this yeah so i would what i did have one uh, i still am my goal is still to publish but my real goal is to get this message out there so i'm happy to be here today and excited really excited to be working with Jocelyn and the opportunity to talk. The the cross-generational thing is huge. So what I'd like to read to you is the first half, the first chapter of my book has been published in a small literary journal. It's called The Book Smuggler's Den. So I'm going to read you the first half of the chapter. Okay. And then um, and then if you're interested, that's where the second half is. Okay. And then before you begin, if you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. And we um, we are here at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And um, we are pleased to be joined today with Holly McNeil and Jocelyn Sarshad. And uh, both of them are sort of, I don't know, they're creating a little a little. Um, spiritual, musical, poetry, literary reading um, about one's journey into some self-discovery and um, really important aspects to kind of finding our way back home, if you will. Mm. I'm going to hand it over to Jocelyn first to sing her second song because it kind of works into what I'm talking about. It sets it up well. Okay, let's do it. Who you waiting for, honey? Who you waiting for? Who you waiting for, honey? Who you waiting for? You don't need someone to open the door. That's the reason you've been lifting weights for. You gotta help yourself so you can help another. Hell is the best thing you can do for your mother. Just be true to the vision of who you wanna be. Drop the fools who ain't listening and don't wanna see. They're just lost in their insecurities If you ain't making moves You don't get to kick it with me mm-hmm. You don't get to kick it with me oh, 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 oh. 
There ain't nothing better than a hot mug of tea Airplane mode, meditative flow Sugar, what's your morning routine? Wake up, beat it, take a... Then leave on the phone so much We're scrolling in our sleep Everybody feels that ain't no way to be No way to reach the fringes of reality We're imagination and creation Endlessly synthesized Where the godly part of us resides Limitless kinetic consciousness of all of our minds You were designed to look inside Feel around for the switch and shine your light So who you waiting for, honey? Who you waiting for? Who you waiting for, honey? Who you waiting for? Y'all see me running before my feet hit the floor Who you waiting for, honey? Go ahead and get more, uh Who you waiting for, honey? Who you waiting for? Who you waiting for, honey? Who you waiting for? Y'all see me running before my feet hit the floor Who you waiting for, honey? Go ahead and get your Well, I love that. That was beautiful. You have such Thank a beautiful you. voice. Amazing. You know, you forgot to mention when you were uh, talking about your bio, uh, bio, but that you perform operatic arias. I, do. <laughs> I was just like, I think that should be mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> this voice has some range. <laughs> yes, she's, her voice is incredible. So that's why I'm so excited to team up with her. Well, and to use this beautiful gift you have in such a unique way is pretty cool. Super I'm cool. excited too. Thank you. Okay, so again, I'm going to read the first half of this chapter. It's about seven or eight minutes, so bear with me. It's called The Yellow Trike. I lost my children in the spring of 2011. Though there would be other restarts in my life, none would be as significant as this one. After work on a July evening, like all evenings since mid-March, I would drive the six miles back to Penrod Lane. There, I stayed alone in a house I had bought especially for the boys. It sat in the St. Anthony School District, one of the finest the Minneapolis metro area had to offer. But that didn't matter anymore. They weren't even speaking to me. The previous spring had marked the end of an eight-year crusade for my two sons, then ages 13 and 15. I had won many battles over that time, but it didn't appear as though I had won the war. Work had kept me occupied since they left. Preparing our team for our first overseas trip to Cairo, my career had always been there for me. Our firm, one of the top architectural practices in the country, was hired to do the interior planning for a large hospital complex in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. I was the project manager. Still, I could only hide behind my work for so long. On the home front, it was time to face the change. I put my house up for sale, and lately I'd been spending my evening boxing up old family memories and getting ready for the yearly neighborhood garage sale. That year, it conveniently occurred when I was downsizing significantly from a family of three to a family of one, removing all the things from my home that, as an early empty nester, I no longer needed. I spent hours in agonizing debate, clearing out the boys' closets and going through their youthful treasures. When I moved back to Minnesota with them five years before, they brought along all their childhood effects, yet when they went to live with their father, they left everything behind. Now it was up to me to decide what to keep and what to let go. What a struggle it was to put a 50 cent or dollar price tag on, t on items that to me carried so many mem memories and seemed priceless. You did it right, my father would often tell me. 
You were right to stick with it, to fight for those boys. <clears throat> it's so amazing how life keeps sending you the same lessons over and over again until you learn what you're meant to learn. This time, it was my turn to be alienated. I thought of my father and how he must have felt when we were small. Dad had kept our beds made and ready for us year after year, hoping for reconciliation. You see, it was never a matter of whether or not I would lose the boys. It was always a question of how long I could hold on to them, how long I could be part of their lives. In the beginning, my ex-husband dictated my time with the children as an evening a week and alternating weekends. So young back then, five and seven, they were full of innocence and life and had no idea what was coming. But I did. I insisted on equal time. Clark refused. This initiated the first custody battle, which ensued for over six months during the divorce itself. We met tirelessly with Dr. Jans, appointed by the judge for the court-ordered child custody evaluation. He was a level-headed man who always wore a suit and donned a bald, hair, a bald hairstyle even before it was popular. He and his colleagues administered inkblot and IQ tests, psychological evaluations, and interviews. Towards the end of the process, the evaluator said, well... You are both good parents, but one of you got an A, and one of you got a C. His statement sent my anxiety reeling. I, couldn't, I simply couldn't afford to be the one who got the C. The risk was too high. I asked Dr. Jans to wait on publishing his report to the court and requested a final meeting with him and my estranged husband to try once again to agree on 50-50. And meet we did. After a long conversation about split weekends and holidays, it appeared promising. Well, commented the evaluator, it sounds like we're actually getting there. Are we, Clark? I asked, turning to, to my soon-to-be ex-husband. Are we talking 50-50? Clark was angry from the onset of the divorce. I knew that. Perhaps if I wouldn't have bolted so quickly from our marriage, things might have been different. Maybe. The crazy part is, without the fatal blow that took down our kingdom, I may have never woken up. Certainly, I wouldn't have gotten this far. Maybe someday I will give you 50-50, Clark replied, so sure that he was the one who got the A. With that, the meeting ended. There was nothing left to do but to wait for Dr. Jans to decide who got custody. Waiting was really hard. Not because I was scared to be alone or that it would mean seeing my children less. I was afraid because I knew my alienation from the boys was a real possibility. From experience, I can tell you that alienation to a small child means parental abandonment, pure and simple. I knew full well what this type of targeted manipulation do, did for a young child's sense of belonging, self-esteem, and confidence. I couldn't let that happen again. I wouldn't allow my boys to sustain that kind of crushing blow. Yet, without the A, I would be powerless to help them navigate what was to come. Without the A, history would repeat itself. The thought that terrified me was that I was equally re responsible for creating the situation. How did I get back here? At the time, I had little compassion for myself. I held no regard for my lost innocence or wounds of my youth. I didn't understand how savagely I'd been treating myself, nor how, no, nor how I tried to bury whatever ailed me by covering up my shame. Still, we all make choices. And the decision I made got me right back here, to where I was as a child. Only this time, I was the parent. A couple of weeks later, I got a message from my attorney's office. The custody evaluation has arrived, and your copy is waiting here for you. 
I couldn't have gotten to her office faster to pick up the report. Nervously, I sat in my car for a while, just staring at the envelope. The evaluator's full report was 68 pages long. Dr. Jans had filled it with all kinds of details about Clark, the children, and myself, our personalities, our strengths, our weaknesses, careers, intelligence, schooling, the events of our lives, and what caused the divorce itself. But all of that would have to wait. I was looking for one thing, and one thing only. There, on the bottom of page 16, I found it. The evaluator had pulled the trigger. I got the A. A feeling of relief fell over me. So grateful I sat and cried. Victory, the chance to make things right, was won that day. Only if we were indeed rehashing the past, I knew the real war was yet to begin. This decision from the court would send Clark into a dark place and our lives into peril. The first battle was the most intense, but many others ensued over the years. The boys were consistently under pressure to express their disdain for me and their desire to live with their father. It was horrible. Worse still, I had zero resolve to deal with my own life crashing down. How was I to protect two young boys who found themselves smack dab in the middle of the wreckage? But these were my boys. I stayed in it. My concept of what love was back then was pretty messed up. Still, I knew one thing for sure. I loved my children with all my heart. I could see the conflict in, and turmoil in their eyes. I wasn't about to give up on them. Excuse me, how much do you want for this small tricycle? The, sa the sale came so quickly, and this woman's inquiry took me by sur surprise. She looked at me for an answer. I recalled the time the boys would play on the small trike. We bought it ourselves secondhand. After a few moments of awkward silence, I softly answered, I'm sorry but the tar tricycle's not for sale. Yes, I thought, this garage sale scratched up yellow plastic trike with orange tassels I am keeping. Stop there. Oh, wow, uh, that's heavy. Yeah, I want to cry when I read it. I, I want to cry listening to it. <laughs> you, you know, um, this is so interesting because my husband went through a similar experience and so I got dragged through the whatever, the 10, whatever. There's all these numbers associated with the uh, the psychological evaluations yes. they make you take and I being what was the stepmother, mm -hmm. you know, was... Uh, was was being evaluated just along with him and I remember um, and it has kind of served me well but I out of the three of us the three parents I got the highest score nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's so funny how um, how that happens you know the turmoil that people are in under this and no family no normal family can endure being you know picked apart in such a in such a crazy way, you know, um, how we have gotten to a place where we think that's okay is really what needs to be in question mm -hmm. in society that we're supposed to evaluate so deeply. And um, I get that there are lots of stories where that would serve a, a family and children very well, but um, I definitely didn't want you to end the story. Now, we have only about nine minutes left of our time. I'm not sure if we can get through uh, the second half of the story, but I think maybe it's more important um, to to talk about why you wanted to share that part so, so deeply. And I think that it's that wraparound experience of your childhood somehow bubbling up into your own life and, and mirroring in their childhood. What, what do you make of that now that you've had time and distance to look back on that? I, I'll say it again, and I'll keep saying it, that adversity is a teacher. And if I had, hadn't had those insights of my own childhood, 
I wouldn't have stayed. It was really hard to stay. I didn't want to stay. I wouldn't have fought. My father didn't fight. My father left. And Ex- except for in his time, you know, the um, the courts were not on the side of the father. No, that's true. So th- they had way more going against them. They were best to cut their losses and leave and try to start over. Yeah. Because they really had no support. Right. Well, and and my mother didn't make it easy for them, yeah. too. But I could see, I was so thankful, if you can call it that, that I could see what was coming. And, you know, we all have holes. My mother had holes. I had holes. But if we don't fill those holes, our children are going to have holes. And our children's children are going to have holes. So I stayed, you know, I stayed in this eight-year battle. But what that did was brush up against all of my own wounds Mm -hmm. and brought them to the surface. I had to find strength for the sake of my children. It's amazing what you learn about yourself when you're in the battle of your lifetime. Right. And fascinating that no matter how we try to get off of that cycle, it circulates around at different stages of our lives. We're really meant to see it from different vantage points, not just the one of the original trauma, but over and over again. So you can continue to process it. And uh, I think that's what people... um, I think they've missed that for a really long time in their life. And kudos to you for, Jocelyn, for getting that early on because you are at least going to draw some awareness. I'm not, it's not a race and it's not about doing it faster, but it is really a lot more fascinating to tackle this on a much deeper level so you can fully process. That's, um, you know, I always like to say, you know, if if I could be anything, I want to be a (laughs) well-processed individual. But to be processed means to navigate or circumnavigate around the issues of our lifetime and look at them from different perspectives. Right. Because the only thing we have control over is how we decide to look at and react to mm-hmm. what is given to us in our lives, the trauma, the pain. It doesn't really, when somebody says that, it doesn't seem like enough. Is it enough that that's all we have? Actually, though, it's not just process. Once you once you open your heart and you reconnect with your core, that inner child that you left so long ago, m- many of us did, there's a real power there. There's a happiness there. There is an amazing joy there that you can then share with others. We can create our lives in any way we want. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not just processing and li- it's not living in the pain. It's not digging through it. It's recognizing it, supporting yourself for what happened. And then watch the magic unfold it's beautiful so in this instance and you certainly don't have to divulge anything personal what was the magic then for you what would you think your golden nuggets were in this situation that you were able to take from it that's a 16 year question but I was basically asleep to my arrested development for three decades and it was the adversity in my life that woke me up and without it, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I am so thankful to be here. So not that I would wish my life on anyone. It wasn't fun. Right. But I appreciate everything I've learned. I'm, I am happy. I am manifesting. And I'm doing this thing with my niece, which is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so as you turn to her and you look at where she is now, what what is what is it that you can impart or what is it that um, her 
hopefulness imparts to you? What do you tell me? What what you are finding unfolding between the two of you that's so valuable? I'm just super excited to see that she wants to find out. People, you can be a victim. You can stay in the pain. But I'm just super pumped that she wants to find out. Because once you do, the answers will show up for you. And sometimes I'm there, she'll say something, and I'll just, you know, just say something back. And it'll open up, you know, something will open up for her. And... I wish I'm the, the the thing that's so exciting about doing this with my niece is that if we can get younger people to open up and start to reconnect with their power, I mean, imagine we can change the world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds pretty aggressive. I mean, pretty lofty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But young people is where it's at. I mean, it's never too late to start. But wow, you know. You know, as I look at all the different. In, uh, we'll, we'll call them incursions into our spiritual life on this planet today. We'll um, give a big, you know, recognition that technology is one of those incursions that st- tends to divide and separate people. Politics divides and separate people. Religion, all of these incursions that try to keep us from this being on this path. The more it seems as though the more incursions that are thrown at us, the harder people look to search and find and I'm finding a great deal of hope in the younger generation you know I I I have to tell you I certainly love life from the vantage point of a 50 plus woman Mm. because it's very liberating and it's very free but to see these young people free themselves up just as much at such a young age it's it's inspiring it really is I have I have a great deal of hope me too and it's beautiful because without you doing what you did and going through what you went through like I wouldn't know as much as I do you know so it's just a beautiful process and kudos to you for being open to it you know we are drawing down on our time let's reflect a little bit about on what um, uh, will the date of your event what you want this type of gathering to do for people that will um, will come and share this experience with you I just want I want it to open up the floor for people to take a look at what they can do to heal and love themselves. Um, And the only way that I know how to do that is by sharing my journey. So through my music, I just want to help people understand a little bit about themselves. Okay. And I feel like I've, you know, I've, I've come across this like magical path and it's just, it's not mine alone to share. I want, I have this time left on this earth, like I said before, and I want to use it in the wisest way I can to bring as many people back to their own strength and power. I love that people are feeling such an intensity to find their purpose now. I yeah. just think that's fascinating. And I don't know if that's swirling around me because I'm also thinking about those things, but I do sense that that's a greater um, a greater group of people are searching for that more than they are. N- nobody wants the big car or the, you know, all the money. It just doesn't seem like that's where the juice is at for life anymore. So for next steps, if you um, want to know more about the um, the second degree um, at the Unbound Collection in Newport Beach on Wednesday, August 7th. That's from 6.30 to 8.30. You can go to um, the website, and the website is secondDegree.art. That's the word second, and then the word degree.art. And then individually, you both have your own websites where you can explore um, you, Holly, your writings, and then um, you, Jocelyn, your music. Uh, wakingmonologues.com is Holly's website um, and Jocelyn 
um, Sarshad, and I'm going to spell that. Jocelyn is J-O-S-L-Y-N. Sarshad is S-A-R-S-H-A-D dot com. Jocelyn Sarshad dot com. Sharing the music uh, that you shared with us today, which is really lovely. So wakingmonologues dot com and Jocelyn Sarshad dot com. But go to second degree dot art if you are interested in finding out more information or maybe even booking your own show i guess you could one could book their own show to have this be part of um i could see this being something that would be really neat for women to do that have a book club Mm -hmm. um that are looking to explore some concepts a little bit more deeply um about you know um you know awakening to to your own um experience and and inner worlds and whatnot. I just, is there anything else you guys want to say before we close? That's what's so great about us coming together with music and song and storytelling. It does fit into a lot of venues. So And meditation. And meditation. Yeah. So yeah. we're excited. I love it. Ladies, um, thank you so much for coming today. And, um, oh gosh, this always happens to me. I don't know how to log into this computer. <laughs> it does this to me all the time. Um, well, thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah, I'm really happy that you're here. Yeah, it's our... Yeah, our the timing of it's incredible. We just had this amazing light bulb go on like two weeks ago, and here we are today. So I think we're taking off. Taking off? Launching. <laughs> I would agree with that for sure. You, um, you, Your timing couldn't have been more perfect, so that's awesome. <laughs> so, well, I really appreciate you being here with us today. So I, I look forward to see where this goes and how it unfolds for all of you. Thank you so Thank you, much, Kimberly. Kimberly. Thank you for being here. Okay, well, I'm going to put a pause on that because we actually ended up with a little extra time in the studio. And I thought, well, you know what? I was intrigued. I hope you were intrigued. I want to hear the second part of that chapter. And um, and so I brought Holly back in to read it for us. So, so enjoy this with us, okay? Great. Go ahead, Holly. So I'm going to just back up a little bit. So excuse me, how much for that small tricycle? The sale came so quickly, this woman's inquiry took me by surprise. She looked at me for an answer. I recalled the time the boys and I would play on the small trike. We bought it ourselves secondhand. After a few moments of awkward silence, I softly answered, I'm sorry, but the tricycle is not for sale. Yes, I thought. This garage sale scratched up yellow plastic trike with orange tassels I am keeping. Amy, one of my oldest and dearest friends, along with her mother Paulette, agreed to help me with the sale that day. Amy was a great coach, encouraging me to take a picture of an item, tag it, and move on. We set up lawn chairs in the driveway as I watched their chil- my, as I watched the children's childhood effects disappear, the ones I could part with anyway. Amy thinks you should rent out your house and move in with her, Paulette stated out of the blue. That would be great for both of you. Ever since her sister moved out, the loft in Amy's house was open. Both Paulette and Amy had previously mentioned the prospect of me moving in. I told them I'd been considering it. I honestly didn't know what I was going to do after the sale of the house, if it sold at all. The boys, have you heard from them? Amy asked, seeing the pain in my face. Family and friends asked me that question often. The answer was always the same. No. I hadn't heard from them, and I didn't expect they would ever be back to live with me. But I did hold out hope for our relationship. In my heart, I knew they knew I loved them. History did not repeat itself, not entirely anyway. With all my dedication, baseball games, home-cooked meals, late-night talks, unicycle parades, road trips, and family outings, I knew they knew. Lightheartedly but sternly, Paulette would continue her line of questioning, but it was okay. I needed, I suppose. 
Besides, she was like a mother to me. So why wouldn't you move in with Amy? Do you like living here by yourself? Do you, you do the boys really expect you to sit here month after month, hoping they would visit? Mom, stop! Amy reeled her back in. How long has it been, Holly? Four months? I nodded yes. The fateful march would mark the end of an eight-year war when my son, younger son, Zach, came to me with an announcement. Mom, I'm going on vacation with Dad, and I'm not coming back. I'm going down to live with him. This wouldn't be the first time something like this had happened. Every incident in this tug-of-war represented another slip of the rope on my calloused hand. I feared if I let go too soon, the boys would forget me. They would feel like I abandoned them when it was the last thing I ever intended to do. I explained to Zach that it doesn't work that way. He just looked at me. I tried to contact Clark to find out what was going on. He didn't return my emails or phone calls. Hanging my head in despair, I found myself feeling defeated and alone. I knew this could eventually happen. I had won the custody battles, but I had gotten, I had gotten the A. But there was always a possibility the boys, when they got older, would go live with their father. I checked it out with experts, as I wanted to do the right thing. They told me that unless their father was completely unstable, it was better for them to have a relationship with him than no relationship at all. I understood they would eventually leave and I would be alone. The previous fall, having turned 15, my older son Nate went to live the majority of, a t of his time with his dad. Not wanting to separate the boys too long, I had agreed to let my younger son go that coming fall. I was okay with that. It was the way it all went down that was so unsettling. Zach, I was trying to get Zach help for school before he went. More than once, he'd been identified as having attention issues. He needed to get some assistance in place. That was not to be. Even at his young age, Zach had tried to stay neutral over the course of the war. In truth, he didn't want to leave his home and his friends in St. Anthony. He was happy there. But at the moment of his announcement, it felt like three against one. All I could do was to hope it wasn't true. Later that week, I received a phone call from the school. Hello, this is Mrs. Donahue, said the vice principal. I wanted to call it and let you know that Zach has been saying goodbye to all of his friends. It's really strange. He's telling his teachers he will not be coming back. Her words were just a confirmation. From experience, I could see what was to come. Armed on my side of the rope with only my resolve, I had been losing ground for a while now. This event would be the finishing blow. Have I been able to hold on long enough? When spring vacation came, Zach left with his father, and as he said, he didn't return. I once again contacted my attorney, only to find out it would be a complicated process and battle in court to get him back. In the meantime, Clark was keeping him out of school where he was falling further and further behind. I was torn on what to do. Zach had to get back to school. If I stayed in the fight, he could potentially end up in court testifying against me. I couldn't do that to him. Something inside me was saying that I had done enough. I had fought well. Knowing it would be a long and torturous time for Zach, I decided not to pursue enforcing the custody I already had. Instead, I took off my armor, laid down my sword, and left that battlefield forever. I didn't lament over any of it, having been embroiled in what seemed to be like endless custody battles, spending tens of thousands of dollars on court case after court case just trying to hold on to them. I did it faithfully, and with no doubt in my mind, it was the right thing to do. 
And though they decided to leave, I held nothing in my heart for them but unconditional love. They were my children. What else is a mother to do? But Paulette was right. I shouldn't wait in vain for their return. It was late in the afternoon when I had more time to reflect on Amy's offer. My primary concern was not having a place for the boys to stay, if they did come back. Amy assured me that they would be welcome in her home. There was an empty guest room with their names on it. The sale was quietly quieting down, but not before a lot of items had gone. I took advantage of the lull and walked through the house, first to the family room downstairs, often crowded with the, my sons and their friends, and then past the boys' rooms and their empty beds. I said a quiet goodbye to the life we had together. At the close of the sale, I put the small yellow tricycle with orange tassels. I kept the small. I pulled. Sorry, I pulled the small yellow tricycle with orange tassels, and the yellow Tonka dump truck still covered in dried mud. I kept the boys' blankets that my sisters sent them from Korea, as well as Nate's miniature motorcycles and Zach's Mexican jumping bean collection. As the day drew to a close, I took down the for sale sign in my yard, and in the end, I decided to go. I'll rent out my house, I agreed with my old friends that day, and move in to Amy's loft. Ultimately, the battles that ensued both in and out of the court not only brushed up against my faulty foundations, but also did their share of bringing my wounds to the surface. It is amazing what you learn about yourself when you're in the challenge of your lifetime. An unexpected consequence of the boys' stage left was a precious gift of time. Time by yourself is a teacher. At first, this new normal felt isolating, but eventually I discovered a quiet wisdom there. Throughout the war to gain strength, I started to do a lot of personal work. I began to recognize that my unresolved childhood trauma created a negative mindset from which I functioned. In defense of my children, I was compelled to change this mentality, and in their absence, I wanted to expand this journey started on the battleground. I would continue on my pilgrimage back to whatever it was I lost so long ago. So... That's so painful to listen to. You know, it's almost as if they slipped through your fingers, even though you were actively involved in parenting them. They were in a tough place. They were stuck in the middle, even though I tried not to have them there. Sure. Now, you know, without having to be, I don't want to be nosy in any way, but it sounded like they stayed with you for eight years and that you did win the custody battle. I did win. And so then the boys were primary custody in your possession for another eight years? Well, I, they were five and seven when I won the custody. Okay. And at 13 and 15 is when they just said, I'm leaving. Okay. And was the younger son following to stay with his brother? Yes. It was really, he was a two against one, you know. I see. So. Yeah. And, um, you know... Having lived through this myself, only they weren't my children, I I have um, a little bit of different vantage point in that, you know, the details are similar, um, but the heartache wasn't as significant for me because I wasn't losing my children, but I had to witness my husband losing his children. Mm -hmm. And the process to pull them away was so insidious and consistent. And we both looked at each other and we told ourselves, you know, we don't want to be the other side of that. We don't want to engage in that battle. We don't want to do what is necessary 
to stop that. And what that would mean is, um, is battle. Mm-hmm. And by, by, like you said, laying down arms and letting it go, you know, it is, it is better for the kids. But the saddest part of the story for me is, and, and watching this is that never repairs. People think, oh, they'll get old enough, they'll make their decisions and they'll come back. And that's not exactly what happens. You know, they basically decide to leave the situation and just avoid it altogether. They don't want to be a part of it. And you, I can't say that I blame them, you know, I just don't. You know, kids of divorce, just at some point, they just have to make a decision to move on from family life. Right. And, and they don't they don't return to their childhood to fix it. They, they will do this in therapy and, and, um, or maybe not therapy, but they will do this at some point in their life and through their own hardships. And hopefully you'll just be there to provide that, um, perspective if they ever ask for it. It's, it's just the most troubling aspect of divorce. It really is. It is. And I can't say that I say, didn't, I didn't save them from not having any holes themselves. Sure. What I did was to be there yeah. And stay in it and show them that they're worthy and worth staying. Now, how old are they now? Now they're 21 and 23. Oh, I'm really wow. lucky, actually. There are a lot of alienated parents out there that never recover. Yeah. And I recovered. Good for you. And um, and you have them in your lives and you have uh, what looks to be a whole relationship, you feel? Yeah, my younger son at the end of my book I, I quote him on a Christmas card he gave me that said mom I'm really proud of you Aww. you showed me what you can do with your career and with your writing and you're such an inspiration Beautiful. he lives here in California and I'm going to visit my other son next month for a oh, week so very nice it's really wonderful and we all have holes and that's you know what I think Jocelyn and I want to make people aware of even Younger people who are thinking about getting married, people can get married as long as they're aware of their holes and they're willing to work at it together. It's when you cover those things up that these things happen, and it happens a lot. Well, and I think this is a perfect example, and I'm certainly not in any way um, dipping into what your financial or your socioeconomic status is, but I think if you held the positions you had, you were living where you were, you had it all. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just say that 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 those people thinking that this is a socioeconomic problem, no, this wow. is just simply what we do to ourselves on this crazy journey of life and self-discovery. And... <clears throat> There isn't any amount of education that can sometimes stop these adversities from from yeah, happening. And this I, is Earth School. We're here to this learn. Is, uh, and I was just going to say, that is why it brings about a whole new awareness that, in fact, it is, what did you call it, a Earth, mystical classroom? Mystical classroom, yes. Yeah, because you, you cannot, even with the best of intentions, the most organized outline, <laughs> you cannot stop these things from happening. No, and I... I always laugh. I mean, I find it so funny because I've definitely been a free spirit for a lot of my life. And every time I turn around, somebody is attracted to me, like my friends. Every single one of my friends are type A, you know, totally got everything under control. And I'm like, what the heck do they see in me? I don't even get it because I do not play by that book. And and yet, you know, I just think they keep wanting, we all kind of bump up against each other to let what the other has rub off on us so that we can, so that we can give ourselves that those vantage points that we talked about earlier. And I just find that so fascinating that... Um, 
my friends that are super organized, they just look at me and they go, I don't even know how she did that. How'd she pull that off? Because I saw her house and it didn't look like this beautiful thing could come from that house. You know, I think you did an amazing job with today. It was great. And what I call that, what you're talking about is, and at night, I didn't make this up by any means, but it's living life through the lens of your experiences. Yeah. Everyone sees it differently. Yeah. Depending on what they've been through and what they, what they, you know, what, what, what they have clouding their eyes or what they can see clearly. But when you say they see it differently, I think it's a really important point to draw home that in fact, we're all living a very similar experience. One that does involve adversity. Yeah. One that does circle the dragon, if you will. And there is no way to avoid that. We just do. And we are going to have to go through that adversity no matter what. So acknowledge it. It's kind of like, right. I, I always tell people that Brene Brown stole my, my thoughts, the whole thing about, <laughs> um, what, what is her thing? Vulnerability. I used yes. to tell that to people in college. Yes. That, that I was strong because I was willing to be vulnerable. Yeah. And that I had strength that when she went and made millions of dollars on that, I was like, dang. "Dang!" But what that really means is that there are those universal truths that we all seem to hold. And if we could just be a little more embracing of those, how much easier this journey would be, you know? The biggest piece of advice I can give anyone is take responsibility. Don't point the blame somewhere else. Don't live the victim's life. Because if you do, your children will also live it or you might live it again It'll come back. It'll come back until you just stand up and take responsibility. It's 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 a classroom. It's um, actually it's a, it's a it's a one. It, it, you can turn it around. You can turn everything around to say what did I learn from that, and you will realize very quickly that you're on a path. That's what brings you back to your power, to your core, your child. And and finding and, and realizing those lessons is what strengthens you. And it not only resolves your pain, it allows you to create on purpose, which is amazing. Yeah. Create on purpose. Boy, that is a line to end this interview off. I love that. Thank and you. create something on purpose. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really glad we had a little bit of extra time. Me too. And um, if you're interested in this interview and if you just tuned in at five o'clock, give me a week or so. This will be up on my podcast page. And um, you will be able to listen to this interview in its entirety. And it was a real joy to spend the time with, with both of you today. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again for being here. Yep. Thanks, Kimberly. Okay, well, I'm going to put a pause on that because we actually ended up with a little extra time in the studio. And I thought, well, you know what? I was intrigued. I hope you were intrigued. I want to hear the second part of that chapter. And um, and so I brought Holly back in to read it for us. So, um, so enjoy this with us, okay? Great. Go ahead, Holly. So I'm going to just back up a little bit. So excuse me, how much for that small tricycle? The sale came so quickly. This woman's inquiry took me by surprise. She looked at me for an answer. I recalled the time the boys and I would play on the small trike. We bought it ourselves secondhand. After a few moments of awkward silence, I softly answered, I'm sorry, but the tricycle is not for sale. Yes, I thought. This garage sale scratched up yellow plastic trike with orange tassels I am keeping. Amy, one of my oldest and dearest friends, along with her mother Paulette, agreed to help me with the sale that day. Amy was a great coach, encouraging me to take a picture of an item tag it, and move on. 
We set up lawn chairs in the driveway as I watched their chil- my as I watched the children's childhood effects disappear, the ones I could part with anyway. Amy thinks you should rent out your house and move in with her, Paulette stated out of the blue. That would be great for both of you. Ever since her sister moved out, the loft in Amy's house was open. Both Paulette and Amy had previously mentioned the prospect of me moving in. I told them I'd been considering it. I honestly didn't know what I was going to do after the sale of the house, if it sold at all. The boys, have you heard from them? Amy asked, seeing the pain in my face. Family and friends asked me that question often. The answer was always the same. No. I hadn't heard from them, and I didn't expect they would ever be back to live with me. But I did hold out hope for our relationship. In my heart, I knew they knew I loved them. History did not repeat itself, not entirely anyway. With all my dedication, baseball games, home-cooked meals, late-night talks, unicycle parades, road trips, and family outings, I knew they knew. Lightheartedly but sternly, Paulette would continue her line of questioning. But it was okay. I needed it, I suppose. Besides, she was like a mother to me. So why wouldn't you move in with Amy? Do you like living here by yourself? Do you... You, do the boys really expect you to sit here month after month, hoping they would visit? Mom, stop! Amy reeled her back in. How long has it been, Holly? Four months? I nodded yes. The fateful march would mark the end of an eight-year war when my son, younger son, Zach, came to me with an announcement. Mom, I'm going on vacation with Dad, and I'm not coming back. I'm going down to live with him. This wouldn't be the first time something like this had happened. Every incident in this tug-of-war represented another slip of the rope on my calloused hand. I feared if I let go too soon, the boys would forget me. They would feel like I abandoned them when it was the last thing I ever intended to do. I explained to Zach that it doesn't work that way. He just looked at me. I tried to contact Clark to find out what was going on. He didn't return my emails or phone calls. Hanging my head in despair, I found myself feeling defeated and alone. I knew this could eventually happen. I had won the custody battles, but I had gotten I had gotten the A. But there was always a possibility the boys, when they got older, would go live with their father. I checked it out with experts, as I wanted to do the right thing. They told me that unless their father was completely unstable, it was better for them to have a relationship with him than no relationship at all. I understood they would eventually leave and I would be alone. The previous fall, having turned 15, my older son Nate went to live the majority of of his time with his dad. Not wanting to separate the boys too long, I had agreed to let my younger son go that coming fall. I was okay with that. It was the way it all went down that was so unsettling. Zach, I was trying to get Zach help for school before he went. More than once, he'd been identified as having attention issues. He needed to get some assistance in place. That was not to be. Even at his young age, Zach had tried to stay neutral over the course of the war. In truth, he didn't want to leave his home and his friends in St. Anthony. He was happy there. But at the moment of his announcement, it felt like three against one. All I could do was to hope it wasn't true. Later that week, I received a phone call from the school. Hello, this is Mrs. Donahue, said the vice principal. I wanted to call it and let you know that Zach has been saying goodbye to all of his friends. It's really strange. He's telling his teachers he will not be coming back. Her words were just a confirmation. From experience, I could see what was to come. 
Armed on my side of the rope with only my resolve, I had been losing ground for a while now. This event would be the finishing blow. Have I been able to hold on long enough? When spring vacation came, Zach left with his father, and as he said, he didn't return. I once again contacted my attorney, only to find out it would be a complicated process and battle in court to get him back. In the meantime, Clark was keeping him out of school where he was falling further and further behind. I was torn on what to do. Zach had to get back to school. If I stayed in the fight, he could potentially end up in court testifying against me. I couldn't do that to him. Something inside me was saying that I had done enough. I had fought well. Knowing it would be a long and torturous time for Zach, I decided not to pursue enforcing the custody I already had. Instead, I took off my armor, laid down my sword, and left that battlefield forever. I didn't lament over any of it, having been embroiled in what seemed to be like endless custody battles, spending tens of thousands of dollars on court case after court case just trying to hold on to them. I did it faithfully, and with no doubt in my mind, it was the right thing to do. And though they decided to leave, I held nothing in my heart for them but unconditional love. They were my children. What else is a mother to do? But Paulette was right. I shouldn't wait in vain for their return. It was late in the afternoon when I had more time to reflect on Amy's offer. My primary concern was not having a place for the boys to stay, if they did come back. Amy assured me that they would be welcome in her home. There was an empty guest room with their names on it. The sale was quieting down, but not before a lot of items had gone. I took advantage of the lull and walked through the house, first to the family room downstairs, often crowded with my sons and their friends, and then past the boys' rooms and their empty beds. I said a quiet goodbye to the life we had together. At the close of the sale, I put the small yellow tricycle with orange tassels. I kept the small. I pulled. Sorry, I pulled the small yellow tricycle with orange tassels, and the yellow Tonka dump truck still covered in dried mud. I kept the boys' blankets that my sisters sent them from Korea, as well as Nate's miniature motorcycles and Zach's Mexican jumping bean collection. As the day drew to a close, I took down the for sale sign in my yard, and in the end, I decided to go. I'll rent out my house, I agreed with my old friends that day, and move in to Amy's loft. Ultimately, the battles that ensued both in and out of the court not only brushed up against my faulty foundations, but also did their share of bringing my wounds to the surface. It is amazing what you learn about yourself when you're in the challenge of your lifetime. An unexpected consequence of the boys' stage left was a precious gift of time. Time by yourself is a teacher. At first, this new normal felt isolating, but eventually I discovered a quiet wisdom there. Throughout the war to gain strength, I started to do a lot of personal work. I began to recognize that my unresolved childhood trauma created a negative mindset from which I functioned. In defense of my children, I was compelled to change this mentality, and in their absence, I wanted to expand this journey started on the battleground. I would continue on my pilgrimage back to whatever it was I lost so long ago. So that's so painful to listen to. You know, it's almost as if they slipped through your fingers, even though you were actively involved in parenting them. They were in a tough place. They were 
stuck in the middle, even though I tried not to have them there. Sure. Now, you know, without having to be, I don't want to be nosy in any way, but it sounded like they stayed with you for eight years and that you did win the custody battle. I did win. And so then the boys were primary custody in your possession for another eight years? Well, I, they were five and seven when I won the custody. And okay. at 13 and 15 is when they just said, I'm leaving. Okay. And was the younger son following to stay with his brother? Yes. It was really, he was a two against one, you know. I see. So. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, having lived through this myself, only they weren't my children, I, I have... Um, a little bit of different vantage point in that, you know, the details are similar, um, but the heartache wasn't as significant for me because I wasn't losing my children, but I had to witness my husband losing his children. And the process to pull them away was so insidious and consistent. And we both looked at each other and we told ourselves, you know, we don't want to be the other side of that. We don't want to engage in that battle. We don't want to do what is necessary to stop that and what that would mean is um is battle mm-hmm. and by by like you said laying down arms and letting it go you know it is it is better for the kids but the saddest part of the story for me is and, and watching this is that never repairs people think oh they'll get old enough they'll make their decisions and they'll come back and that's not exactly what happens you know they basically decide to leave the situation and just avoid it altogether they don't want to be a part of it and you i can't say that i blame them you know i just don't you know kids of divorce just at some point they just have to make a decision to move on from family life and and they don't they don't return to their childhood to fix it. They, they will do this in therapy and, and, um, or maybe not therapy, but they will do this at some point in their life and through their own hardships. And hopefully you'll just be there to provide that, um, perspective if they ever ask for it. It's, it's just the most troubling aspect of divorce. It really is. It is. And I can't say that I say, didn't, I didn't save them from not having any holes themselves. Sure. What I did was to be there yeah. And stay in it and show them that they're worthy and worth staying. Now, how old are they now? Now they're 21 and 23. Oh, I'm really wow. lucky, actually. There are a lot of alienated parents out there that never recover. Yeah. And I recovered. Good for you. And um, and you have them in your lives and you have uh, what looks to be a whole relationship, you feel? Yeah. My younger son, at the end of my book I, I quote him on a Christmas card he gave me that said mom I'm really proud of you Aww. you showed me what you can do with your career and with your writing and you're such an inspiration Beautiful. he lives here in California and I'm going to visit my other son next month for a week oh, so very nice it's really wonderful and we all have holes and that's you know what I think Jocelyn and I want to make people aware of even Younger people who are thinking about getting married, people can get married as long as they're aware of their holes and they're willing to work at it together. It's when you cover those things up that these things happen, and it happens a lot. Well, and 
I think this is a perfect example, and I'm certainly not in any way um, dipping into what your financial or your socioeconomic status is, but I think if you held the positions you had, you were living where you were, you had it all. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just say that 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 those people thinking that this is a socioeconomic problem, no, this mm-hmm. is just simply what we do to ourselves on this crazy journey of life and self-discovery. And... <clears throat> There isn't any amount of education that can sometimes stop these adversities from from yeah, happening. And this I, is Earth School. We're here to. This learn. is, uh, and I was just going to say that is why it brings about a whole new awareness that, in fact, it is. What did you call it? A mystical classroom. Mystical classroom. Yes. Yeah, because you you cannot, even with the best of intentions, the most organized outline, <laughs> you cannot stop these things from happening. No, and you I always laugh. I mean, I find it so funny because I've definitely been a free spirit for a lot of my life. And every time I turn around, somebody is attracted to me, like my friends. Every single one of my friends are type A, you know, totally got everything under control. And I'm like, what the heck do they see in me? I don't even get it because I do not play by that book. And and yet, you know, I just think they keep wanting, we all kind of bump up against each other to let what the other has rub off on us so that we can, so that we can give ourselves that those vantage points that we talked about earlier. And I just find that so fascinating that... Um, my friends that are super organized, they just look at me and they go, I don't even know how she did that. How'd she pull that off? Because I saw her house and it didn't look like this beautiful thing could come from that house. You know, I think you did an amazing job with today. It was great. And what I call that, what you're talking about is, and at night I didn't make this up by any means, but it's living life through the lens of your experiences. Yeah. Everyone sees it differently. Yeah. Depending on what they've been through and what they, what they're, you know, with what, what they have clouding their eyes or what they can see clearly. But when you say they see it differently, I think it's a really important point to draw home that in fact, we're all living a very similar experience. One that does involve adversity. Yeah. One that does circle the dragon, if you will. And there is no way to avoid that. We just do. And we are going to have to go through that adversity no matter what. So acknowledge it. It's kind of like right. I, I always tell people that Brene Brown stole my my thoughts, the whole thing about <laughs> um, what, what is her thing? Vulnerability. I used yes. to tell that to people in college yes. that, that I was strong because I was willing to be vulnerable. Yeah. And that I had strength that when she went and made millions of dollars on that, I was like, dang. dang. <laughs> but what that really means is that there are those universal truths that, that we all seem to hold. And if we could just be a little more embracing of those, how much easier this journey would be, you know? The biggest piece of advice I can give anyone is take responsibility. Don't point the blame somewhere else. Don't live the victim's life. Because if you do, your children will also live it or you might live it again It'll come back. It'll come back until you just stand up and take responsibility. It's 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 a classroom. It's um, actually it's a, it's a it's a one. It, it, you can turn it around. You can turn everything around to say what did I learn from that, and you will realize very quickly that you're on a path. That's what brings you back to your power, to your core, your child. And and finding and, and realizing those lessons is what strengthens you. And it not only resolves your pain, it allows you to create on purpose, which is amazing. Yeah. 
create on purpose. Boy, that is a line to end this interview off. I love that. Thank and you. create something on purpose. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really glad we had a little bit of extra time. Me too. And um, if you're interested in this interview and if you just tuned in at five o'clock, give me a week or so. This will be up on my podcast page. And um, you will be able to listen to this interview in its entirety. And it was a real joy to spend the time with, with both of you today. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again for being here. Yep. Thanks, Kimberly.